Uh, again, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Benjamin. Nice to meet you. Um, as, as Brett said, uh, I am going to ask for for a little bit of trust this morning, and, and I'm a little scared to ask um, for that trust. But can I trust you guys a little bit? Yes. Mm, thank you. Thank you. There's a couple of you I can trust. Um, I'm a little nervous about this morning. And the reason I am, it, it, I feel prepared. I've been thinking and praying through this um, all week and even before that. Uh, so it's not really about um, whether I know what I'm going to say. Um, I'm nervous because what we're going to be talking about is prayer. And when somebody like me stands in a room like this with a microphone on and says we're going to be talking about prayer, um, all of us bring all kinds of thoughts and opinions into the room. Honestly, some of us bring baggage into the room. Um, there's some people who hear that and their eyes just roll back in their head like, I can't believe I came on this. How are we going to talk about prayer for a whole half an hour? I can't even pray for five minutes. Um, there's some people who are so excited. I have met people who have said that they have led workshops on exactly how to pray and what words to say so that you can get the result you want depending on the circumstance. If anybody tells you that, run in the opposite direction, okay? This is not something we use to manipulate God. It's not some sort of genie in a bottle. There's people I've known who've said, I'd love to. I've tried that, but I just feel like my prayers just bounce right back from the ceiling. Like they go nowhere. Some people who just have this sweet, sweet prayer life. Like you've met them and, and even if you're not sure about this whole God thing or this whole Jesus thing, you hear about their prayer life and, and you know that when they say they'll be praying for you, you know they mean it and you, you long for that in kind of a sense. And there's people who've said, Benjamin, yeah, I've tried that. My dad still left. My spouse still died. The job just didn't come through when I needed it. I've tried that, it just doesn't work. So you can see why it's a little nerve-wracking to stand before you and talk about this. And another reason, just to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous, is we're not talking about much of that today. Because this idea of prayer is this huge thing, right? I mean, the idea that we could possibly commune with the living God, a holy being, the God of the universe... Man, that is huge. I mean, I've been married for 13 years this month, and I feel like I am still just learning what it means to be in a relationship with my wife, to be, to be in this friendship, in this marriage relationship. I mean, how much, do we really think that we can wrap our arms around this idea of prayer in just a half hour, or maybe after a couple of years of following Jesus, just have it down on lock? I don't think so. So what we're going to do today, if, if you're willing... And if you're not, there's a great coffee bar outside, I won't be offended, um, is to approach prayer from just one angle. Because it's this big thing, and so I know all of us uh, bring our questions. Some of you pull out your paper, like, great, I've had questions about this, I hope we talk about that. But we're just looking at one angle today, and we're going to be looking through a story that Jesus told. And, and what we're going to do today is kind of give an overview of this angle about prayer. And then next week, Josh, our minister to students, is actually going to walk through kind of more practical steps for what that looks like in our lives. Make sense? So to do that, to get started today, um, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, 
Starting in verse 1, if you got your Bible, um, pull that out. If you didn't bring your Bible, if you forgot it, underneath your seat, there's a blue Bible. Um, and we're going to be on page 971 in that Bible. And if you, you, can't, you don't have a Bible, uh, listen, that is our gift to you. Do me a favor, grab a pen on one of the seats, put your name in that Bible. Uh, we want those to walk out the door. We got a ton of them, and um, we love for people to have those if they need it. So please grab that Bible. Um, before we really dive in, um, what I want to do is I, I, I want to kind of set the stage for the story that Jesus is going to tell. You see, Jesus loved to tell stories. And in the Gospels and these biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, they're called parables. And parables are really just stories um, that, that kind of drive home a point that teach something. And some people um, believe that, you know, every single parable has so many points and, and if you kind of fill out the formula, you'll get it. But just like you and I tell stories for different reasons, Jesus told stories for different reasons and so they're all kind of different. But the thing is, the story that Jesus tells today actually is set in the broader context and follows after something that happens at the end of chapter 17. You see, when Luke wrote this biography of Jesus, Luke was a physician. He wasn't a follower of Jesus um, when Jesus was here on earth, we don't think. But, but later on, as he became a follower of Jesus, he went back and he talked to the eyewitnesses of those who, who knew Jesus and walked with him. And he, he said, man, there's a lot of work that's been done writing down these teachings and these actions of Jesus. But he wanted to go down and do it chronologically and really in orderly fashion. And when he wrote this, just like um, all the other authors of the Old and New Testament, they didn't have these chapter breaks. Right? They didn't have these numbers 17, 18, 19. There weren't these verse numbers in there. Those were added in later as an easy way for us to kind of refer to what we're reading and what we're talking about. Luke just kind of wrote on and on and on. And so there's, there's this chapter break before this story that Jesus tells, but what he talks about in this story is actually directly related to the conversations that he has before this. And here's what happens starting in chapter 17, verse 20. Luke um, tells us that, that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders that were just concerned with following the Mosaic law, the law of Moses found in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, um, they were so concerned about it, uh, they would often... Um, Instead of just kind of saying, okay, we're going to try to follow God's law, we're going to set more rules on top of that so we don't even get close to crossing the line. And they came to Jesus, and sometimes they would try to trick Jesus. Sometimes they were sincere. We don't know necessarily from the text which of these times it is, but they asked Jesus. They say, Jesus, you've been talking about this kingdom of God. So when's it going to happen? Because in their mind, this idea of the kingdom of God that Jesus continually talked about was, was this event that would take place and hopefully they had hoped that it would, they would kind of just shake off the shackles of, of Roman rule because they were under the, the, the Roman government, the Roman Empire and, and they were oppressed in many ways and they, they wanted Israel to be its own nation again. They wanted Israel to be the center of monotheistic worship in the entire world. And so they said, when is this going to happen? And Jesus says, listen, it's actually the wrong question. Because the kingdom of God is already among you, Jesus says. It's already in your midst because Jesus had already come. Jesus is the king. And they live in this tension, Jesus said, where, where, where the kingdom of God is already here. And one day, as we'll find out, when Jesus would die, eventually rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven, you and I live in this space between that time when this kingdom of God has already come and, and the time when Jesus would come back again and bring his kingdom in fulfillment. 
And then after this conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus kind of pulls aside his disciples. We don't know if it's kind of walking somewhere, if he just kind of makes a point and says, okay, I gotta talk to you guys about something. But Jesus gives two warnings about this time when when Jesus would come again and bring his kingdom um, into fulfillment, when, when, when Jesus would reign in full. And the two warnings are this. First warning is this. Jesus says, listen, you're going to long for me to come back again so much. You're going to long for, for, for this kingdom to be realized fully so much that you're going to be tempted to follow everybody who says they know when it's going to happen. Jesus would teach elsewhere that, that even he, when the, during his ministry on earth, didn't know the day or the hour. And he, he tells his followers of Jesus, he tells his followers that, that they would not know when it was going to happen, but it would be obvious when it did. So basically, when it happens, you're going to know. So don't trust people that say, hey, I've got the inside track. I've got the inside scoop on this. I've, I've kind of done the math in the scriptures, and this is the date it's going to happen. Look, there it is. It's starting right there. We can tell. No, Jesus says it's not going to happen. Just like lightning flashes across the sky, you're going to know when it happens. So Jesus' first warning is you're going to be so desperate for it to happen because you're going to be, you're going to be struggling be tough for you. And, and it would be. His followers would, would, would all of it, Judas would, would eventually betray him and he would kill himself. But of the other 11, most of them would be killed for their faith. And perhaps one was exiled and lived to old age. He knew it would be tough for them. He said, you're going to long for my coming again so much. You're going to believe anybody who purports to know anything about it. The second warning is this. He's still talking to his disciples. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, the time when God brought judgment on the earth and through the floods, people right up to the day that Noah entered the ark, right up to the day of the floods, they continued to eat and drink. They continued to, to marry and be given in marriage. In other words, it was business as usual, right up to the day it happened. In the same way, in the lot, when judgment was, was brought on Sodom and Gomorrah, right up until that day, they were buying and selling and planting, thinking, man, we got all the time in the world right up until the day it happened. Just like that, you're going to be tempted to have business as usual. You're going to forget that you're supposed to be longing for my kingdom at all. And in that context, Jesus tells this story. Chapter 18, verse 1. He says, and he told them, his followers, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And without, if we just kind of plucked this out of, of scripture without any kind of context, we might think, oh, so we're supposed to give up, not give up and just kind of pray and pray and pray until we get what we want. But given the context, we kind of know what's coming. Jesus tells this story. He says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. In other words, in this city, there is the local magistrate, and again, everybody's got a boss somewhere, but in this town, this magistrate ruled. He was the one with all the power. And Jesus says in this story, he neither feared God nor respected man. He believed he had no accountability whatsoever to anybody above him. He had no accountability to do what was right and to give judgments that were fair and correct. He didn't respect man, which we might think, well, of course you're supposed to be unbiased, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about that this judge couldn't care less if somebody was experiencing injustice. He didn't care about their plight. It wasn't that he was unbiased. It was that he didn't care at all about people. In fact, there was one thing he cared about. The bribes that could come through. There is this local magistrate that has all the power. 
and believes he has no accountability to anybody whatsoever. And then Jesus says, there was a widow. Verse 3, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us what, remember, this is a story that he's telling. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us what the details are in terms of this injustice. But a widow, in their day and age, was, was a symbol of extreme, just, just poverty of options. There was no power there. See, a widow had no power because the, it, was, it was the husband who would care for the wife, and it was the husband who could go to court, the husband who could vote. In fact, this is why, if you read through the Old Testament, if you read through much of the laws of Moses, why there was so much concern that God had that the nation of Israel would care for widows. Because he said, it's not going to be like the rest of the ancient world. You see, in the rest of the ancient world around Israel, if you're a widow, you're in trouble. You're vulnerable and nobody would take care of you. In fact, people would take advantage of you as seems to be happening here. But God said, not in my nation. You will care for the most vulnerable among you. No matter what it costs you. But in this story, she's in Roman rule. She has no recourse. There's nothing she can do. She has no the only hope she has would be to get a fair judge who would see her situation. We don't know exactly what the injustice was, but she seems so desperate. It may have had something to do with, with uh, perhaps her, her late husband's um, estate, that she was not cared for at all and she had no other hope to live. But this judge wouldn't grant her justice. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respected man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, a lot of times we read the teachings of Jesus and I think we use this monotone voice and we assume he had these flowing robes and he kind of had this style where he was talking in this sweet voice and he never told a joke at all. It's not the case. Jesus is using exaggerations, like extreme hyperbole to say, over here in this power spectrum, here's the guy with all the power, and over here, here's the woman with no power at all. And this judge is not going to give her justice until he realizes that she is going to keep coming day after day. She's going to be on the docket day after day after day. And eventually he says, I am getting beat up black and blue by this woman. I think at this point, Jesus intends for a smile, if not a chuckle, to kind of come to our faces. Because the ridiculousness of this, that there is this judge who has all the power, and there's this woman who just because he comes, she comes to him day after day after day is going to beat him black and blue, is going to beat him down. It's ridiculous because a judge would never do that. Jesus says because she is so persistent, she finally gets her justice. And then he gives us the point of this story. Sometimes we're not so lucky in Jesus' story. Sometimes he tells a story and even his closest followers are kind of scratching their heads. Thankfully, he gives a little bit of an explanation at the end of this. And, and the Lord said, verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, at this point, 
we might be thinking, okay, so we're supposed to compare God to an unjust judge? In fact, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. Jesus sets up this story and says this, this judge who has no care for justice, who has no accountability to God whatsoever, because he is pestered again and again and again by this woman, he will finally give her justice. Here's the point. It's not that if we bother God again and again and again and again, that he'll finally give us what we want. It's not the point at all. Jesus is saying, how much more is a loving God going to bring justice, going to do what he promised he said he will do? And this is kind of an aside, but somebody came here to hear this. Some of you have grown up thinking that God is more like the unjust judge in this story than he is a loving father. Maybe for a couple of reasons. Maybe you grew up in a religious setting where you were told that you had to do certain things, you had to pray a certain way, and if you didn't do those things, then God wasn't going to love you. Or maybe it's because if you're honest, growing up, your father was more like the unjust judge, and so you just kind of assume that's the way God is. Listen, hear me well. God is not bothered by you. God is not bothered by you. In fact, when you read on in this story, Jesus says very clearly, God is going to bring justice. He's going to do what he promised he said he was going to do. The point isn't that we pester God again and again and again and then we get what we want. The point is God is already going to do what he said he was going to do. So therefore, why would we not go to our loving father again and again knowing that he is faithful and that he will fulfill his promises? But for some of us, that's a tough, tough thing to bite off and understand because of our experiences. Um, I'm not a perfect dad and, and sometimes even less so around bedtime. I don't know how it is for you if you're a parent, but my kids know that when they have been put to bed, okay, so you got the whole bedtime routine, um, you pray for them, and you got the first tuck in, I've got three daughters, and then inevitably there's the second tuck in because one of them forgets they had to go to the bathroom, so they jump out of bed and go to the bathroom, and they come back in, and you can't get them back in bed without the second tuck in. So finally you get that second tuck in, you turn out the lights, they know mom and dad are out. Can I get an amen? There we go. Sometimes I lose my patience. Man, a couple weeks ago, there was a movie I was just excited to see and we were gonna rent it and Jennifer and I were gonna sit down and just enjoy an evening watching this movie. And in the first 20 minutes after we put the kids to bed, three of them came down before the, like, the first 20 minutes even happened. Had no idea what was going on in the movie because we kept having to pause it and talk to these kids who were supposed to be in bed. Um, one of my daughters has been struggling with just, as kids do sometimes, uh, being scared at night. And occasionally, lately, um, because she knows the rules, she's actually our rule follower in the family, I'll hear footsteps on the stairs coming down after lights have been turned off. And I'll hear this, I'm sorry, I'm just so scared, and I'll turn around, and there are tears coming down her face. And in that moment, she is not a bother. I say, honey, come, no, you are not, it is fine, come here, let's talk about this, I know you are scared. How much more will your loving heavenly father want you to pester him with what matters to you? 
how much more will your loving Heavenly Father want you to come before him and kneel before him with your concerns, with what's happening in your life? I mean, this, this story alone lands there and for all kinds of prayer reminds us that we are not a bother to God. You aren't a bother to God. God is ready to hear you day and night. But as we said, this has a particular context and Jesus is making a particular point. You remember those warnings that he told his followers about? He told his disciples that the temptation would be that they would long for Jesus so much, they would be experiencing so much brokenness in this world, especially those who, who were being persecuted for, for their following of Jesus and telling people about Jesus, that they would be tempted to follow anybody who said, hey, I know when Jesus is gonna come back again, when this kingdom is coming into its full. The other temptation is that they would go about business as usual. They'd go to church, go to small group, put on a name tag, serve, go to work, return that package from Aunt to Amazon, put that kid's toy together, turn over the calendar to 2020, week after week after week, and before you know it, it's 2021, business as usual. Friends, I know all of us here in some level are acquainted with suffering. I'm not saying that we aren't. But if we are honest with ourselves, we do not face the same kinds of things that Jesus' original followers faced, especially when it comes to being persecuted for following Jesus. I would argue that here in our culture and in our situation, that most of us fall under the second category of warning. That our temptation isn't to be just so anxious about Jesus coming again that we're willing to follow anybody who says they have an inside track. That our temptation is to kind of forget about it. Business as usual. So what does that look like for us? Friends, here is my concern. Here's where I think it lands for us. There's many different applications we can make, but I think where I think it lands for us is this. For those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, and I know not all of us are followers of Jesus, but for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we got our relationship with God, we got our church, we got our small group, we serve sometimes, we have some fun, our kids are happy here, they've got some friends here. We're good. We don't give a second thought to the fact that God has promised to set things right in this world. That we live in a broken world where people have broken relationships with God who don't know Jesus. To put it bluntly, we don't give a second thought to the fact that there are those around us, our friends and neighbors and coworkers who are headed towards eternity without Christ. And this isn't about just simply relationships with God. We've talked in the year 2019 a lot, especially in this fall, that, that Jesus, when he came, he offered life and he, he offered this flourishing life. Life to the full. So I think for us, this is what we need to know. That God wants us to continually come before him 
and to beg him to turn our communities and families and neighborhoods and workplaces and schools into places of flourishing, that God would bring about what he said he would bring about. But if we're honest, I think most days, we just don't care. I got my routine. I got my devotions. I got my reading plan. I got my small group. My kids are in youth group. I go to camp. I'm good. Friends, for us, what it means, Luke introduces this story that Jesus told. Luke tells us the reason he told it is so that they would pray and never lose heart. There's two ways that we can lose heart. The first way to lose heart is to see so much brokenness that we fall into despair and we're tempted to find any solution that will fix that brokenness, forgetting the fact that Jesus was the one who said he would come back again and set it all right. The second way we can lose heart, where most of us, I think, land, is that we would just forget about it. That we'd say, you know what, I'm good. I got my relationship with God. I've been reconciled by Jesus' work on the cross. I'm fine. That we would forget that we live in a broken world, that we are just travelers here, that there is injustice in this world, that there are people who are headed towards eternity without Christ. And that Jesus said he would set all of this right. You see, when Luke says that Jesus told them this story so they would continually pray and not lose heart, it wasn't like a specific mechanism of prayer. Next week, Josh is going to talk about kind of some ideas about what that looks like. But it's not this how-to list. It's not that Jesus said, okay, pray these words in this specific instance. This idea of prayer is really this continually coming before God, being on our knees and begging God to do what he already promised he was going to do. We can't forget, we can't forget that Jesus said that he will bring justice. And so, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, a title that Jesus used for himself, will he find faith on the earth? And people who study this, who are scholars, believe that this word faith, because when you read it in the original language, it says kind of the faith, meaning this kind of faith, meaning the faith that this woman has. Jesus says, God is already going to do it. And so when Jesus comes back, is he going to find people who, because they know the character of their heavenly father, because they, they know the promises of God, that they continually come to God because they can trust him and say, God, you said you would do this. Would you please do this? God, you said you would do this. Would you please do this? And of course, our God is faithful. Jesus says, am I going to find that kind of faith? When I return, am I going to find people whose hearts are broken in this world and remembered my promises that I would set all things right again, that my kingdom would come, that I would come back and bring it into fullness and I would reconcile people to myself? Am I going to find people whose hearts are inclined to the things that I am passionate about? Or am I going to find people, followers of me, who just don't care? As we finish this up and we look forward to next week, I hope you'll be back next week and, and, and just kind of see how this practically plays out in our lives. But just a few questions for us to consider. Because the good news is this. In this particular text, 
What Jesus is asking us to do is pray. And listen, I know thoughts and prayers get a bad rap in our world, right? Something happens, people post on social media, and thoughts or prayers to this particular situation. And then people say, we need more than thoughts or prayers. And the reason I think people are like that is because if we're honest, when we say thoughts and prayers and hit send, or we tell somebody and we're going to pray for them, we walk away and forget about it. Yeah, of course that's lame. But when we incline our hearts in prayer to the things that God is passionate about, to the things that are close to his heart. And that always reorders our loves and reorders the priorities in our life and creates action. The first step, Jesus says, the first stop is at the throne of God to say, God, would you reorder my life? Would you reorder my thoughts? Would you reorder my loves? Would you reorder my priorities? That my heart would be broken for the things that break your heart? That you would incline my heart and my life towards the things that actually matter? So the good news is today, I'm not asking you to do anything but pray, but just a warning. True prayer. I'm not talking in a few seconds in the morning talking about coming before the throne of grace to a heavenly father who is not bothered by our coming but desires to see us come back again and again and again and ask for the things that incline our hearts towards him. It will reorder your life. It will change your heart. Here's a few questions as we wrap up. First question is this. When was the last time your heart was broken for the broken things in this world. When was the last time that your heart was broken for the things that are broken in this world? When was the last time you saw injustice? When was the last time you saw somebody who was struggling and they had no hope because they don't know that there is a God of grace who is not not bothered by them but who longs to give them the gift of Jesus who died on the cross for them? When was the last time your heart was broken for the things that are broken in this world. Friends, I gotta be honest with you. This one got me this week. Because this week, my friends, my family was fine. Yeah, we always have some bumps along the way, but my kids have a home. They basically got what they wanted for Christmas. The fridge is full. And I know Jesus. When was the last time your heart was broken for the things that are broken in this world? Second question is related to that. When was the last time your heart was broken for people who don't know Jesus? And I mean broken. Friends, if it is true that the only way that we can be set right with God is a relationship with Jesus, and if it is true that the moment that we, we put our trust, that God called us to himself, we put our trust in Jesus We went from dead to alive, from blind to seeing, that we went from orphans to children of God. Why would our heart not break for those who have not yet experienced that? When was the last time you walked away from a conversation with your coworker, your neighbor, or the mom at the bus stop? Were your friends in school? When was the last time you walked away from one of those conversations, your heart broken because you knew the only answer was Jesus? Last, what would it look like in your life for you to continually ask God to act in those situations? That's 
what Luke tells us that, that Jesus had in mind. When he says to pray and not lose heart, he didn't just mean to do it once. But to have this posture of prayer that God, you are only, you're the only one who can rectify this situation. You are the only one who can set things right in the world. You are the only one who can bring this person to you. God, would you act? Because we have no other hope but that. Again, next week, we're going to dive into this really practically. And so for this week, um, the one thing I'm going to ask us to do is to pray. And as a starting point, because all of us need a starting point, this isn't something you walk away. Remember, we can't wrap our whole arms around. This isn't something that, that tomorrow you'll figure out. But we've got to start somewhere. So today, we're going to start on this wall. And if you've been around Flourishing Grace, you, you've seen this wall before. But if you're new, let me explain it. This is our praying for one wall. And there's a lot of slots here with empty, with empty spaces that say, I'm praying for, and many of them, there's a name. Here's what we've asked people to do. We've asked people to identify one person. Yes, there's many that we should be praying for, but, but for the sake of this, this exercise, to choose one person that we cross paths with on a regular basis. I love your Aunt Sally in Michigan, but we're not talking about Aunt Sally in Michigan. We're talking about people that we see on a regular basis in our lives that don't know Jesus, that are far from God, and we pray for them. If you've never written a name on that wall, what I'm gonna ask you to do as Brett begins to play and the band comes out is I want you to spend this time asking God who that one person is in your life. It's local, doesn't know Jesus that you see on a regular basis and you're gonna simply begin praying. Yes, there's other steps that come, but that's not what this is about. But I'm confident of this. As you incline your heart towards God, as you come before the throne and ask God to set things right in this person's life and bring them to Jesus, I'm confident that that will lead to action because it always does. When our hearts break for the things that break God's heart, it always leads to action. If you've already written a name on the wall, what I'm gonna ask you to do for the first minute of the song is just sit there and pray for that person by name. And maybe you've forgotten um, to pray for that person. Sometimes I do. Mine's name is John well, wherever you are in that journey, just, just sit and pray for that person that God would work in their life. Next week, we're gonna continue on and get super practical. Let me pray for us. We'll get going. God, I confess that there are so many days and weeks uh, where, where I am in, in business as usual mode. And God, even as somebody who spends most of his time in a church, God, that is so easy to do. And so, God, I pray that you would forgive me for that. That, God, that my heart would be broken for the things that break your heart. That, God, as you have promised already that you were going to set things right, that I would come before you in confidence, but also in eager anticipation of what you are going to do in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our, our world, along the Wasatch Front, here at Flourishing Grace, but, but among all the churches around here who, who proclaim that there is a God of grace who sent his son Jesus to die as a free gift. God, would you act? Would you incline my heart to you? You are our only hope, God. We beg for you to act. We pray these things in your son's name. Let all the people say.